0: Well, the reason we do this Lessons in Carol service is not just to kind of tap into the sentimentality of the Christmas season, nor is it to give you a way to plausibly deny that you're in a really hard part of the semester right now and to just have a study break and escape from the chaos that Chip mentioned on campus, the sickness, um, the term papers, the all-nighters. We do this service to, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the franticness, get our bearings and remember that this chaotic, sickly world is the only world that Jesus came into. So don't think about tonight as escaping what lies before you back at home or back on campus. Think of this as meeting you in the midst of that. And setting you on a trajectory in the weeks to come, because some of you, when you go home, things get more chaotic or more sad. Or home isn't home. And remember this in the midst of those places, not as an escape from those places. We have a hard time thinking about Christmas the way the Bible talks about the Christmas story, or God becoming man and entering into our world. Think about some of the ways we've been discipled our whole lives In the ways we think about Christmas, Uh, we have kind of the sentimental nativity stories with nativity scenes. And our our best carols, the ones we all know by heart, start like or go like this, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Uh, Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. And a song we'll sing in a little bit that has more lines than just this, but silent night. Holy night. All is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. That's how we think about Christmas. The way the early church thought about Christmas was very different. From the 11th century onward, this song we started tonight by singing, O Come, o Come, Emmanuel, has been a, uh, a carol of the church since the 11th century. And the way the early church used to sing this song is half of the congregation, when they would gather, would sing the groaning part, the dark part, the yearning part. Oh come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. And there'd be a pause and a gap. And then the other side of the room would just belt in, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel, darkness and mourning and loneliness and exile answered by rejoicing for Emmanuel has come. So which story is the right story? Is it the one filled with darkness and mourning and chaos? Or is it the silent, sweet, no crying, gentle version? Well, the Bible answers the question, and it's an important question. Matthew seems to think so. The way he has chosen to describe Jesus' birth that Hunter just read a second ago in verse 18 is this. He doesn't start by saying, hey, let me tell you the story of Jesus' birth, And he doesn't just say, hey, get this, God became man, became one of us. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. In other words, this is how Jesus Christ entered his world. So for Matthew, how is key. What world did this God step into? Sanitized world? A little town of Bethlehem, away in a manger world, sweet, gentle, painless world? Or did he enter into the world that O come, O come, Emmanuel is capturing, that Matthew is capturing? This is an important question because deep down inside, this question is tied to the question, did this God come for me, and can he help me, and can he save me from where I am, Christian or not? with all the chaos and whatever's going on in your life. If this is what you've been discipled in and this is who you think God is, he's of little help for you. This is a world where none of us live. This is not the real world. If this is the true account, the historical account of the world God stepped into, you have great hope because you're familiar with this world. In the space of about 10 verses that Hunter read, Matthew drops some shady details about how God invaded this world to take it back for himself and to make everything new and good again through Jesus. In the space of 10 verses, we find out about fear and uncertainty and panic. What Claire read earlier with Mary, Mary did not receive this plan of God as, this is my dream life, finally, this is what I've always been praying for. Mary was panicked by this idea. Joseph was troubled by it, Matthew says, as any guy would be troubled when the Holy Spirit comes and says, Your girlfriend is pregnant, and the child is of mine. The child is of mine. He's troubled. Now, we don't know how long. Was it a day? Was it a week? And then he had a dream, and the angel said, Hey, don't worry. This is going to work out. Was it three months? Was it eight months? How many sleepless nights did Joseph go through before he slept one night and had a dream? And the angel said, do not fear. How many sleepless nights did Mary have? How long did she live with this news secretly? Doing the math in her head, I know exactly what my dad's going to say when, I, when he sees the baby bump. He's as likely to believe that this child is of God as you would be if you walked to your dad or your daughter came and said, I'm pregnant, but don't worry. It's from God. That would just make your dad matter. So, fear and uncertainty and trouble, sexual promiscuity. Joseph and Mary were good Jews, they knew the scriptures, they were obedient, humble people, just people. They knew what the law prescribed for adultery, stoning. And Mary's doing the math in her head of, I'm going to be pregnant, visibly pregnant pretty soon in front of my town, and everyone here knows me. And how am I going to explain this? How are we going to explain this? Joseph, because he's a just man, says quietly, listen, behind the scenes, we're just just going to pretend like this engagement never happened, plans to divorce her quietly until he has the dream. There's rumors that go around town. We know from the other gospels later on, Jesus was known and called by the townspeople as the bastard son of Mary. Joseph's not mentioned by intent. We don't know where the dad is. We don't, know who the, we don't know who the baby daddy is. He's the bastard of Mary. That's who he is called. And Mary knows this, and Joseph knows this. He's born into a family of poverty living paycheck to paycheck. Think two years ago in West Virginia or Appalachia when the election's going on and you're seeing how these people live in just abject poverty and you see the desperation and the tragedy that no one listens to their voice. That's his family that he's born into. There's political turmoil and chaos everywhere. Did you catch in the very end of what Hunter read that all of Jerusalem was troubled by this boy's birth? Herod especially, when he hears that there's a child been born with the name King of the Jews, and Herod says, but that's my name, I'm the King of the Jews, and he plots the death of every boy two years and under. And so it's not just shame or fear or panic or political turmoil, it's refugee status It's getting out of town in the middle of the night with just the clothes on your back for Jesus and his family. It's genocide. It's ethnic cleansing on a massive scale. That's the Christmas story that's in your Bible. It's very different than the songs we sing. And here's why we must see this Jesus came into your world, it's the only world he came into is this broken wreck of a world and broken wrecks of lives. Jesus didn't land into paradise. It's more like he landed into Syria present day in the midst of a civil war, in the midst of chlorine attacks where little kids are dying and horrible tragedies are happening. That's the world that Matthew says God stepped into to redeem. He comes to the world that keeps you up at night, the world that terrifies you that you can't keep under control, the world that makes you sad, the world that makes you mad, the world that makes you selfish, the world that puts ugly, ugly things in your heart and makes us participate in the ugly, ugly things around us. That's the world Jesus stepped into to redeem. And that's your world and that's my world. So the real Christmas account is actually very encouraging, though it is not as sentimental as the one we grew up with perhaps not as warm and cozy up by the fireplace for this conversation. Here's this to listen to and to make sure you see before we push any further. You have to look at and embrace and taste your own weariness if you're going to truly rejoice If you're going to truly, in a deep-souled, deep-hearted kind of way, rejoice, you first have to look dead in the eye the weariness in your own life and in the world around you. That's how rejoicing happens in the midst of weariness. A weary world rejoices. That's what this story is about. How does God bring rejoicing in a weary world, though? How does He bring rejoicing How could someone walking the streets of Damascus, Syria, with all of this hell going on around it, be whistling or content or have joy? Or you in your life, how could you have joy? Well, Matthew does not structure his account of Jesus' entrance in the world around like three philosophical points. He really builds this around names. Did you pick up on that? Several times. He says, "He he will be called this, he will be called this, he will be called this, he will be called this. And there's three names in particular that he draws attention to that are really the gospel in this passage. And these are not names that Mary and Joseph look at their cute little baby boy and they say, He he looks like a John. Doesn't he look like your dad who was named John? Let's call him John. God doesn't delegate this task. He says to Joseph and he says to Mary, You shall call his name Emmanuel." which is just a bunch of Hebrew prepositions and proper nouns smushed together. Immanuel, with us, God. Name him this, God says. Name him, God is with you. Well, what does this mean? What's the significance that God is with us in our weariness? Because that's the secret to rejoicing in the midst of weariness. I've talked a little bit about my sister Annie before. She lives three hours north of Nairobi in a tiny little town called Nanyuki, And she has, for almost 10 years, run a baby home. It's not an orphanage uh, because they, they receive abandoned babies that have been left by the roadside or the police find them in public toilets or wherever and bring them to Annie. They've been abandoned, left for dead. They'll bring them to this baby home. They will take care of the baby. Whatever the baby needs, they'll raise these children until they can find the forever family in the town or the region. What does it mean that Annie, my sister, is with these orphans? What does it mean that Annie is with them? Well, she's a Westerner, so she has access to power and education and money that most of the rest of the world doesn't. She is um, she's medically trained. She's an EMT. She has a huge heart for these kids. She has two uh, three older brothers, myself included, who, to our shame made her tough as nails through a lot of fighting and other things growing up. So she's ferocious. That's who my sister is. What does it mean that that Annie, with all of her education, her resources, her medical training, her ferocity, her tough as nailsness, is with these kids? It means she's not arm's length from them like I am. Hey, call me if you ever need anything. I'm here for you, like we say to each other. That's not what it means that Annie is with them. She is with them. She lives with them. She's in the next room from them. She knows them. And what does it mean that Annie is with them? It means that she knows which one of them is crying based on the sound of the cry. It means she knows how to treat each one at a different pace. She knows their needs. She's acquainted and familiar with their personality. She is with them. And add all of this up, Annie with them, or God with you, God with all of his resources, all of his power, all of his compassion, his grace, his loving heart, with, not, hey, call me if you never need me. Let me know if I can do anything to help. But God with you, and all that that means, you. You. You and your past, me and my present, me and my cluelessness about the future, me and my bad habits, me and my darkness that I don't let people see, me and my regret, God with me. Add all of that up, and what you get is there is something bigger and more fundamental and influential to your story and your life than your tragedies and your weariness. Is that not true? For my sister, is there not something more fundamental and influential and game changing in these orphans' lives than their orphanness? You bet. It's my sister and all the other helpers. She is the dominant influence, the game changing presence in their lives, not their orphanness. God with you, Emmanuel, is the game changing presence in your life, in the trenches of your real life. Not the life you wish you had, not the way you think you should be, but the way you are good, the bad, and the ugly and dark. God with you there. That's Emmanuel. Do you believe that? Here's where the metaphor breaks down Annie can't change the status of these kids, they do not have a father and a mother. Annie can't transform their hearts. She can't push back, in a sense, the stubborn status or the stubborn tragedy of their orphanness. She can't change them even though she can meet them in the midst of it and serve them. But Jesus can, and that's what his second name that Matthew says here is, You shall call him God, the Father says. Jesus, which is a Hellenized version of the name Yeshua or Joshua, which means, literally, it's a verb In a proper noun, Yahweh saves, God saves. And Matthew expands a little bit. He saves us from what? He saves us from our sins. So it's not just Emmanuel. God is with you. It is God is with you, and you shall call him Joshua or Jesus, which means he will deliver me from my sins. He will save me from my sins. That's the second name that Matthew draws attention to here. Why this name? We don't have time to go into Joshua from the Old Testament. He was a conqueror. He was a deliverer. He defeated the enemies of God's people, just like Jesus will, for his, like his namesake. But what he will do, he says specifically the reason he has come near to you is to save you from your sins. And the question that raises is, do you realize that's why God has come near to you? This is always what Jesus wanted to talk about first, whether you were a paralytic or a tax collector or a woman of the night or whatever you were, Jesus wanted to start here. Remember the woman at the well? She wants to talk about which sanctuary we should worship in, and Jesus said, where's your husband? And he doesn't want to start with our sin because he's malicious and he's rubbing our face in it. He wants to start there because that's the cause of everything else. That's the monkey on your back that you can never shake off. It is the unfixable human dilemma. It is intractable, it is stubborn. Try as we may. it doesn't go away. It is your number one need of God, it is one who can wash that away, and one who can transform my heart so that it stops becoming a factory, an epicenter, a production center of evil. Jesus says, I have come to save you from your sins, to separate you from the guilt of it as far as east is from west, to separate you from the power and the captivity of it and the slavery to it, to set you free from the love of sin, delighting in it and helping you see it for what it is. You shall call his name Jesus for he will come to save us from our sins. And I ask you, is this your connection point with Jesus? Or are you only willing to let him come near to you? Or you only have ever thought, the reason God comes near to me, this awesome sentimental Christmas story now means I can kind of, it's ballast for my emotions. I don't have to feel sad all the time or anxious all the time. Kind of open up to a verse and pop this and I feel better all of a sudden. Is that your only connection point with Jesus? Or does praying to him or pleasing him get you the future that you want? Jesus didn't come primarily for that reason. He came to make you new and to make you good and to make you clean and to make you friends with God again. Do you see that as your connection point as he does? And the last name that Matthew talks about here is that he is the king of the Jews. Verse 2, chapter 2, Herod says, "'Where is he who has been born king of the Jews?' And the question here is, well, then what kind of king? Because I know what kind of king Herod was. Herod was the kind of king that we're all used to. He's the politician that we're all used to. He's the leader that we're all used to, the dictator, the tyrant. He is one who leverages his power for his own personal or political interests. Is Jesus that kind of a king? Is he the kind of king that's indifferent to the needs and struggles of the average, everyday Joe Schmo? Is he the kind of king who's holed up in the palace unaware of real life for his subjects? Is he the kind of king who only acts on your behalf when it's in his interest to? What kind of king is this Jesus, king of the Jews? Well, he says a few verses down, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel? He's a shepherd king. And he's always referred to that all the way through the Old Testament. That the Messiah will be a shepherd and a king. The way Jesus rules you is by knowing you. Shepherds meet sheep where they are, shepherds move at the pace of the sheep, or they move the sheep along at a healthier pace. Shepherds protect the flock, shepherds lead the flock to pasture. Shepherds strike the sheep when they're running towards danger. Jesus is a shepherd king, and Matthew puts that in the spotlight, that it's not just a ruler that will come from Judah, but a ruler who will shepherd God's people. I was thinking there's two ways to fight a battle, and you look at any recent war, there's the Navy and there's the special forces. The Navy stays miles and miles offshore and the safety of a ship lobbing shells three miles onto shore, and that's how the Navy attempts to defeat enemies. And then there's paratroopers who parachute in behind enemy lines, 10 of them, or 15 of them, or 50 of them. And they fall under fire down to the ground, because the people who need deliverance can't make their way to the beach to swim through the water to get on the boat. Is this king and his protection of you like the navy where from miles away, he sends some stuff to help you? Or is he one who parachutes into the crap that you're in and carries you out forward through that? This account would lead us to believe the Christmas story is a lot more like the Normandy invasion than it is away in a manger. God parachuting into his world under full fire from his creatures to save his world and turn the tide forever, and to save his people. And that's what he's done. There is a quote that I came across recently by a psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson, and he said, in observing his patients as they've come through the doors, every human's deepest drama is looking for someone who's looking for them. So, this driving drama in all of our lives is looking for somebody who's out there looking for me. I think we can take that and I think we can say that's a good thing. The question is is there a God out there looking for you? Or is there just you looking for a God? One is gospel, one is freeing, one is life giving, one is life transforming, one is religion. You supply all the energy, all the devotion, all the power, all the insight, all the wisdom, and you never know what you're going to get. Maybe you find God, maybe you don't. Is there a God out there looking for you who has come for you to gather you back to himself and to make you new? I think the passage Hunter read and that we're talking about answers the question mighty fine. What kind of king is this, the king of the Jews? Matthew is an amazing author. He starts his gospel with Jesus, the King of the Jews, and he ends it with Jesus, King of the Jews, because you know where this name appears again? On a little scrawled sign by some ridiculing Roman soldiers who wanted to get one last dig into this man dying naked on a cross, heaving for the next breath of air, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. He is Emmanuel, God with you. He is Joshua, come to deliver you from you, to deliver you from your sin. And he is king. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are Emmanuel, that you are Jesus, that you are king. We pray that as we hear of your authority and your kingship, we would would stop with our foolishness of trying to arrange you around our kingdoms and that we would arrange our kingdoms and our lives around you. You are a good God. You're a compassionate Savior. And you have come for us. My prayer is that in every heart and in every mind, you would persuade us and convict us of the depth of this truth and reality. And keep this on our minds in the weeks ahead. We ask it in your name. Amen.